chapter 14. We're going to look at just one verse this evening, although we'll look at some of the surrounding verses uh, when we get to application. <clears throat> Somewhat of a, an odd, often misunderstood uh, saying of Jesus Christ in what is the beginning of what are known as the farewell discourses. Um, that is uh, the last uh, teaching that Jesus has with his um, apostles on the night uh, that he is arrested, betrayed, and uh, stands trial. So uh, we're going to look at John 14 and verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Just four points this evening, not six like this morning. So just four points tonight. First of all, the promise. What promise is Jesus making here? Secondly, the people to whom Jesus makes this promise. Thirdly, the problem with why we do not see this promise realized. And then fourthly, prescriptions by way of remedying the problem, if you will, and there are a number of them. So, greater works than Christ. Let me ask you by way of introduction. Have you ever walked on water? Anybody? Have you made the blind see? No, didn't think so. <clears throat> Have you fed thousands with just a few loaves and fishes? Have you turned water into wine? Have you brought the dead back to life? Well, me either. But many mistakenly interpret this verse in that way. And uh, it's inaccurate because it's inconsistent with what we find in the book of Acts, which we'll get to momentarily. But that leaves us still with yet one more question that we need to answer. What is it that Jesus is referring to here when he says there will be greater works than his, if not miracles. Well, I'll cut to the chase here and not keep you in suspense with respect to the promise that Jesus is making. It's simply this. The greater works that Jesus refers to are the conversions of people and the advancement of the gospel. That is, you would see a far greater number of conversions than Jesus saw, and you will see a far wider spread of the gospel than Jesus saw as well. That is the promise that Jesus makes here. And that is what uh, the definition of the greater works that Jesus is speaking of here. Now, just think of it for a moment, if that causes you pause and you're wondering whether or not that's accurate, just think of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, right? Not his death, his resurrection, his ascension, certainly not his heavenly ministry, his great high priest now, but his earthly ministry, his three-year itinerant preaching ministry. Just think of it, all right? How influential was that itinerant preaching ministry of Jesus in three years? We have to admit that it was not very influential at all, was it? <clears throat> 
He would not likely be the model for church growth schools um, in our day. After three years of itinerant preaching, we're told uh, that there were 120 in the upper room, and uh, that's Acts chapter 1, verse 15. Here, there are only 11. So, not very influential for three years of preaching. Also, the earthly ministry of Jesus in that three years of itinerant preaching was not very extensive either. The geographical area of Israel, if you don't know it, is much smaller than the size of California. It's roughly um, 150 miles from top to bottom, uh, from Dan to Beersheba, and about 75 miles wide from Jordan River to the Mediterranean. 150 miles by 75 miles. Now, if you're a very good student of the Bible, you'll know that the vast majority of Jesus' preaching ministry was in the northern Galilee region. And that is because that's where the most religious population amongst Israel was to be found. The Judean population down in Jerusalem uh, was largely corrupt. But those that were most religious were up in Galilee. So Jesus spent the majority of his time in his preaching ministry up in that northern region. So Israel as a whole is 150 miles by 75 miles wide, right? You got the desert down south, and Jesus spends the majority of his time up in the northern region. Not very extensive at all. So, the earthly ministry of Jesus is not very influential, and it's not very extensive. That's just the truth of what the Bible teaches us. And yet, and yet, a radical change begins on the day of Pentecost. Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost to preach, and the prophecy of Joel is fulfilled, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church, and in one day there are 3,000 people saved. We get to the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, we're told that ultimately there will be a great multitude that no man can count. So, the pouring, outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost dramatically changes everything. And as we noted this morning, the blessing to Abraham, that in Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed, is fulfilled by the Great Commission. So, in fact, we see that the greater works is corroborated by the fact that despite Jesus' earthly ministry not being very influential, not being very extensive, that all changes after he goes to the cross, is raised from the dead, and pours out the Holy Spirit upon the church. And just to verify that, I'd like you to look with me in the scriptures, because I know you're all Bereans, right? Don't believe this guy from New York. He may be pulling a wool over our eyes, right? Show me in the Bible, right? I know we're not Missouri, but you're show me people, right? You're Bereans. So, so look in the Bible. Let's look at the book of Acts. Book of Acts, chapter 4. We're going to go through a bunch of verses here to see that this is actually what the book of Acts teaches, all right? Acts chapter 4, verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men, only the men, came to about 5,000. How many were saved during Jesus' earthly ministry? 120, maybe, at least that's what we're told. Maybe a few hundred more scattered around. Day of Pentecost, one day, 3,000. Get to Acts 4, 5,000. 
Look at Acts chapter 5, verse 14. Acts chapter 5, verse 14. Whoops. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Look at Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Jews, Hebrews. Acts, uh, verse 7, Acts chapter 6. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Look at Acts chapter 9, verse 31. You get in the picture? All right? Search, search the scriptures. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. Verse 35, Acts chapter 9. And the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Whole towns turning to the Lord. Look at verse 42, Acts chapter 9. And it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. See the pattern continue? Acts chapter 11. Look at Acts chapter 11, verse 21. Acts chapter 11, verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Verse 24. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And verse 26. And when he had found them, he brought them to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the, great, uh, the disciples were first called Christians. A great many people. Look at Acts chapter 12 and verse 24. Acts chapter 12 and verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts 13, verse 48 and 49. Acts 13, 48 and 49. When the, Gentiles heard, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Acts 14, verse 1. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. And verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Acts chapter 16, verse 5. Acts chapter 16, verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Acts chapter 17, verse 4. Acts chapter 17, verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. Verse 11, same chapter. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scripture daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Acts 18.8, just a few more. Acts 18.8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. One more. Acts chapter 19, verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Scholars refer to the book of Acts as the New Testament book of Numbers, and now you understand why they designate it as such. Jesus' ministry, not very influential, not very extensive, all changes with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Because Jesus said when he was lifted up, referring to his crucifixion, he would draw all men to himself. All women too. But by that he meant all peoples, not just Jews, all nations, 
would be drawn to him, all by virtue of the completed work of Jesus on the cross of Calvary, his resurrection from the dead, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Those are the greater works that Jesus is promising in, in John chapter 14. I hope that's been demonstrated from the Bible for you this evening. The critical question, though, as we come closer to home here, is this question. To whom is that promise given? To whom is that promise given? Now, I went to Australia a couple of years ago to give a series of lectures on evangelism, church planting, and in Australia and New Zealand. But in Australia, I was surprised to find much opposition to what I was teaching. Imagine, people in Christian churches opposing evangelism and church planting. Now, why were they doing that? They said, oh, the Great Commission, that was given to the apostles, and it applied to the apostles. Kind of caught me by surprise. Wasn't ready for that. But do you know that for centuries, that's what the church believed? They believed that the Great Commission, or these greater works, were something which was entrusted to the, to the apostles and not to anyone else. It wasn't until people like William Carey and others in the golden age of missions did you see uh, an outburst of evangelistic and missionary activity in taking the gospel to the nations. So, to whom is the promise given? Is it just the apostles? Church believed that for hundreds of years. It's only one problem. It's not what the text says. You might say, well, okay, all right, maybe not just the apostles, but maybe the original disciples, those people, those 120, those 11, those numbers that were with Jesus at the end of his itinerant ministry, maybe the promise is given to them, and that's what we're reading about in the book of Acts. Well, that would make sense, and now you're getting a little bit more substantiation because you're referring to the Bible, and at least not just your own idea, right? There's only one problem with that answer. It's not what the text says. Look at the text. The answer is right there. To whom is the promise given? Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I'm going to the Father. The promise of Jesus reaches down the corridors of time to touch you here and now in Chino. It's living and active Word of God, isn't it? You are to do these greater works. Very clearly, not my opinion, not my theological predisposition or training, not eisegesis reading into the text what I'd like it to say, Black and white Bible verse. That is what Jesus says. You and I are to do these greater works. It's not always what we see, though, is it? At least it's not what I see. 
Some of us were speaking last night about what we thought was the greatest challenge that the Reformed Church faces in 21st century North America. We had a lengthy discussion about it, some back and forth. It was my contention as an answer to that question that the greatest challenge the Reformed Churches face in the 21st century is reaching the lost to bring them to Jesus Christ and become baptized members of his church. I think that's the greatest challenge we face. But we have this promise. So thirdly, what's the problem? What's the problem? Well, again, as I mentioned this morning, you could probably enumerate and articulate various problems, but I think the main problem, and if I could speak for myself, and because I'm a sinner just like you, I can address this to you as well. I think the main problem is your heart. That's my main problem. Does anybody like Keith Green? I love Keith Green. I love Keith Green. Keith Green, he has this song. He says, my, my eyes are dry. He says, my, my, my prayers are cold. My heart is ice. My heart is hard. It's a heart problem, isn't it? Can I address this analogously? When you're faced with the prospect of physical death, the death of a loved one, the death of a close friend, the death of a fellow member of the Christian church, first church, right? You're terribly grieved by that. Your hearts are heavy, and that's constantly on your mind. Now, that's a right and proper response governed by genuine love and real concern for that person who has passed on. What I'm suggesting is the prospect of eternal death, though, is not so real to us. That day in and day out, we interact and come into contact with men and women, boys and girls, who unless they turn from sin and trust in Jesus, unless they repent and believe, will spend an eternity in hell. And yet we can walk right by we can have our social interaction and our hearts don't have that genuine love and real concern for them. I and you need the heart of Jesus Christ. That's what we need. Can I show you what I mean? Look at Luke chapter 19. Look at Luke chapter 19 and verse 41. Luke chapter 19 and verse 41. Now, I know you're very good students of the Bible, and this is the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. <clears throat> and let's skip over verse 41 and what, 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 What's the context here? Verse 42. Would that you, Jerusalem, Jewish people, nation of Israel, God's own covenant people, 
Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote a record of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman armies that came in 70 AD. They said that the slaughter of the Jewish people was so vast that the streets ran with blood for all the people that were killed. I was in Jerusalem back in 1994, my wife and I, we and you can actually see the stones of the temple. Not one rests upon another. Fulfilling what Jesus says here. God's covenant curses are going to be brought down on his own people for their unbelief, for their disobedience, for their rejection of the Son, for their lack of believing that Jesus was God's Son and Israel's Messiah and the only one who could save them from their sins. What I want to draw your attention to is in verse 41, though. When Jesus drew near to Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept. You would have thought that for someone who had come to his own and his own received him not, For the owner of the vineyard finally to send his son only to be rejected by the vineyard tenders, that his response would have been, you're going to get yours. The time is coming and God's patience, my father's patience is run out with you and you're going to get it. He wept. He wept. My heart is hard. My prayers are ice. I don't weep as I ought for the lost. I suspect you don't either. You see, we need Jesus' heart for the lost. That's what you and I need. You know that well-known verse in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Can I read you a couple of quotes? John Calvin, writing on John 3, 16, says, The Heavenly Father, the Heavenly Father does not wish the human race that he loves to perish. That's Calvin. R.B. Kuyper, whom I mentioned this morning, I love R.B. Kuyper. He says this, John 3.16 makes the amazing, incomprehensible, unfathomably profound, well-nigh unbelievable declaration that the holy God sovereignly loves hell-deserving sinners and that he loves them so much that he was willing that his only begotten son whom he loves with all the 